we're pro density as, as abundant housing. Density is a loaded term and it's a term that can turn people off. But, you know, the ultimate sort of impact of that density is not just about creating more homes and more opportunities for, for people to live in that community, but, but density is, can be more affordable to, to build. Um, it's also more sustainable. Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 82 with your host, Dan Rubin, RH Investment Group. Ray Herto, RH Investment Group. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today is... Jesse Canson Benenov, Abundant Housing, Massachusetts. Jonathan Burke, board member for Abundant Housing, Massachusetts, and all-around urbanist. There we go. Nice. <laughs> and photographer. And photographer. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. John, you're also kind of like a... Twitter celebrity. It's true. Your Twitter you game is strong. <laughs> How did you feel about the uh, acquisition? Do you think it's still happening? It's not happening. You don't think you have the inside word? I don't have the inside it's word, over. but it's not happening. <laughs> we'll see. It might, but Good. it doesn't How many fo- is it followers? Yeah. I don't do Twitter. 15,000? Oh, wow. I don't That's like, great. I don't like to, I don't All right. Well, what's the myself, handle? I don't know. Did we capture what the handle is? Uh, it's Berkey, B-E-R-K-I-E-1. Nice. This is where I did most of my research for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan gets like 20,000 retweets every time uh, he tweets something. Good engagement. So, so Jesse, give us the quick elevator pitch on abundant housing. So Abundant Housing Massachusetts is a still fairly new statewide nonprofit pro-housing advocacy group based here in Massachusetts. Our motto is that Massachusetts is for everyone. And we believe that every community in town in Massachusetts should be open and, and welcoming to everyone, regardless of you know, race or income, age, ability, sexual orientation, any other life experience. And that sadly is just not the reality throughout much of greater Boston and, and Massachusetts. And a lot of communities use what we call exclusionary zoning, uh, restrictive zoning to keep, whether it's affordable housing, uh, apartment buildings, or, you know, just variety of housing choices out of their communities, limiting it only to, you know, expensive luxury single family homes. Uh, for the people that can afford them. And, you know, that drives the, you know, rampant segregation that we see uh, in communities um, across our region, as well as is a major driver of the lack of supply of homes, which drives our housing affordability crisis throughout the state. So that's really what we're set up to deal with, is that lack of having enough homes for everyone who lives in Massachusetts or, or wants to live in Massachusetts. You know, we we take to heart the the reality that, we just have a severe under um, undersupply of homes. You know, Massachusetts has built in the 30 years prior to 1990, we built about 900,000 homes in Massachusetts. In the 30 years or so since 1990, we've only built about half that, about 400, 450,000 homes. And that's at a time when you know our population has grown steadily. Obviously, our population isn't growing as much as like you know the Sun Belt or other parts of the country, but it's it's growing, um, and, our, and this is part of it. And this is absolutely part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, our economy is growing. We've added a lot of jobs. We have people moving to Massachusetts for you know biotech, uh, tech, or academia, and uh, you know household sizes are changing. People are living in smaller family units, and so um, all of this is when you add in the fact that we haven't built as many homes as we need is really driving our crisis, and it's forcing you know the the higher income earners uh, into competition for the the very limited supply of homes with you know working class folks and obviously when you pit those those two groups together it's the the higher income folks that are going to win 
lower income folks are going to lose. They can't afford those high prices. So that's why we're seeing, you know, folks moving from maybe who grew up in Boston, move into places like you know, Brockton, Fall River, things like that. So, you know, in short, what we want to do is just create an equitable, equitable supply of, of homes across the region and across the state for people of all income levels. You know, we, we are big supporters of a, what I call capital A affordable housing, right? Mm-hmm. Subsidized housing. That's the world that I came from before I became the executive director here at Abundant Housing Massachusetts. But it's not just that. That alone, subsidized housing alone, tax credit, low-income housing, tax credit housing alone won't solve our crisis. Uh, We need to build for everyone in our market, including middle income, those who can't maybe afford the the high-end housing that's built a lot in Boston and throughout the region, but aren't income qualified for low-income housing. So to address that, we talk a lot about you know, zoning reform and, and, and permitting reform to make it, you know, less time intensive, less costly to build new homes in and around Boston to help moderate the price and ultimate sales or, or rental prices for those homes. So that's one hell of an elevator. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you're going, yeah. going. That's probably a whole, whole episode right there. So, so, so yeah, I, let's, unpa- I, let's unpack. I agree. Too. I agree with a lot of, the, of a lot of your points just to get a little bit more detail on what you're actually doing or getting involved in. So are you actually, are you developing? Are you partnering with developers? Are you working with municipalities, driving zoning reform and change? Where do you get involved kind of in the process or life cycle of a project? Yeah. So we are not uh, developers. We're not working on individual projects. In fact, we generally have a policy of not commenting on individual development projects, except for those that might be precedent setting, major, you know, changing the game. What about a four unit townhouse project? I'm not going to not gonna oh, touch that right now, right? Yeah, I mean, what if someone's your friend? <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, I think it would be on a podcast. I think it'd be important just to clarify we were before we were recording here you, you, in, in a prior life, you have been a developer. Yeah. So you get that perspective. I totally get sort the of advocating from that perspective. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I spent a number of years doing development in and around greater Boston, primarily affordable housing, some mixed income housing. But I totally get that perspective. Uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're friendly to that perspective, right? We want more homes to be built. We recognize how homes get built in, in our economy. And that's, you know, generally, although not exclusively, but generally through private development. You know, to answer your question, uh, our focus is sort of twofold, right? Um, on, on, to begin with, our mission is to expand the base of grassroots pro-housing organizers throughout greater Boston and, and, and the state. So these are individual activists, uh, sometimes working uh, in collaboration with their neighbors in local communities who will support specific development projects. So like the YIMBY movement? Yes, we come out of the YIMBY movement. I spent a number of years, I'm actually the founder of A Better Cambridge, which is pro-housing YIMBY organization in Cambridge, which was one of the first, if not the first YIMBY group uh, in Massachusetts. So with that perspective, we're trying to expand the pro-housing or YIMBY groups uh, throughout the state of Massachusetts. That's a hard uh, thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. (laughs) We already have in our first year, uh, about 300 individuals who are members of our organization and then a dozen of these grassroots pro-housing or YIMBY groups, uh, if you want to use that term. Uh, who have affiliated with us, with more coming in, you know, every every couple months. And our mission is to grow that and not just bring in those groups like A Better Cambridge or others that already exist, but to help seed the creation of new pro-housing groups like that around the region and the state. So that's 
that's our first mission, right? Building up that grassroots pro-housing movement. We've moved a little bit away from the YIMBY term, but that's where we come from. While building up that movement is providing, our mission is to provide voice to that movement in, in state level policy conversations, right? So in particular at the state house, right? We recognize that of course, zoning is implemented at the local level. It takes your town meeting, your city council, your board of selectmen, whatever it may be. But zoning is authorized at the state level uh, in Massachusetts and around the country. Except Boston. Except for Boston. So we can <laughs> get enabling, into Boston. Yes. Yeah, uh, Boston has a different enabling legislation than, than 350 other cities and towns in Massachusetts. But yeah, so we're, we're trying to put effort into reforming Chapter 40A of Massachusetts general law to make it easier for uh, communities to zone for things like apartment buildings, near transit, et cetera. So again, so if you, build, building up that movement and then driving policy at the state level. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at some of the reasons why I got involved and, and joined the board a couple of years ago and approached, was really looking at how do you take all of these sort of mystified, how does zoning work, how does permitting work, how does entitlement work, why is it so expensive to buy and build housing in Massachusetts and drop that down to a level where somebody who doesn't work in this world can understand it. And understand why they need to go to their town meetings and they need to go to their select board and they need to go to their state reps and counselors and say, look, we have a housing shortage. It's why my friends are moving away. It's why I can't live close to my parents. It's why my parents don't have a place to go to age in our community. We need to support these zoning changes that will eventually enable us to actually build the housing that we need. So I think that's sort of one of the attractive pieces for me about a lot of this work is obviously the legislative piece and the advocacy piece, but it's also just getting doctors and, and scientists and teachers and firefighters and professors to realize they need to get behind some of this movement too and actually support these things on a local level. You know, one thing, this is something of a tangent, but when you go to these meetings, sometimes people ask, hey, Mark, are you going to do uh, apartments or for sale condominiums? And often I'll respond that if I want this to get approved, I have to offer for sale product rather than for rent because there's such a stigma around building uh, rental units. It's like people who never remember being a tenant or renting. And secondly, that they, they want housing for families and that's in air quotes. And it's this very rigidly defined family. Can you respond to that? Does that bother you as much as it bugs me? I'll take the last piece. Okay. Um, and, and again, I'm not necessarily speaking for abundant housing. I'm speaking for myself here mm -hmm. too. So there was Twitter a huge disclaimer. All opinions are an asterisk. Yes. Um, if you look at that push to build family housing, it's some communities push for it, some will push against it because we don't want that burden on our school systems. Building family units doesn't necessarily equate to families moving in, right? If you look at parts of the South End, the Ink Block neighborhood in the South End, where I've lived for a couple of years, you have a lot of two bedrooms that were built in those buildings because they wanted to encourage families to move in. That's not what happened. It's cheaper for two singles coming out of college to split a two bedroom and get their own studio or one bed. Take a look at some of the neighborhoods in Boston that need more density to add, to get some folks and, and get folks options beyond that single family homes. But take a look at the suburbs too. Look who's occupying a lot of the family housing and the traditional family housing in our region. It's a lot of empty nesters. There's nowhere to go, right? That sort of cap on that housing market and that community if they want to age in place in a smaller unit because we haven't built the types of housing and the varieties of housing in those communities hasn't has sort of put, like I said, put the cap on the opportunity for folks to continue moving out of that cycle and opening up those family units. So part of the argument, I think, and again, this is not speaking for abundant housing, this is speaking for myself, is actually saying, look, let's start opening up the opportunity to build more housing in those communities to keep people in those communities too, as well as welcome new homeowners in there. And, you know, on the, on the question of 
you know, rental versus ownership as abundant housing. Uh, yeah, I would say, you know, we're pro housing. We want homes uh, for anyone and everyone of all types. We're, I would say, maybe agnostic on whether we prefer rental or or ownership. I think obviously both have a, have a place and we certainly want to counter the stigma against rental housing. Uh, many families for generations have grown up in rental housing and in some countries, they primarily do have uh, rental housing for families. And so there's absolutely nothing wrong with with rental housing. And in a lot of the more exclusionary suburbs of greater Boston, creating opportunities for rental housing is the way to create more op- more access to that community for for people who don't live there, whether you know families of color or lower income people or whatnot. So in the start of your question too, was every time you go to a community meeting, and I think part mm-hmm. of the the answer to some of our crisis is let's figure this out and figure out how we grow and grow smart in each community now. So you don't have to go for every single project back to the community mm-hmm. and answer those same questions, but actually say, look, I'm addressing the plan. And this is your housing growth plan that you developed five, 10 years ago with community input. And I'm meeting some of the demands that you put in that. I think the other flip side to that is, is density too, right? Yeah. So you go to these community meetings and they don't want you to build like you could provide a lot more variety and types of housing if they just allowed you to build denser buildings, right? You're kind of, sometimes you're capped at the number of units you can build. So you're trying to eke out every single square foot and and, co- and build costs are super expensive here. And so I think it's just a, it's just a double-edged sword that you're trying to fight both ways and you know, you're doing their best you can, but you're getting pushback on all sides. And so it's sometimes it's things that have to get sacrificed and it's ultimately the unit sizes. We're pro-density as, as abundant housing. Uh, you know, density is a loaded term and it's a term that can turn people off. But, you know, the ultimate uh, sort of impact of that density is not just about creating more homes and more opportunities for for people to live in that community, but but density is 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 you know, can be more affordable to to build. It's also more sustainable, right? One of the things that we're working on right now, and lots of people around the Commonwealth are working on, is this new law, sort of colloquially referred to as the MBTA Communities Law, which does now require 175 uh, cities and towns of of Greater Boston that are that are served by the MBTA to implement uh, one zoning district where multifamily housing of at least 15 units per acre is allowed by right. Which is so low, in my opinion. 15 units per acre 15 units per acre is low in Boston, although that law doesn't apply to Boston. It's low in Cambridge and Somerville, but it's a lot in some of these further flung, you know, commuter rail communities that are primarily single family home, that have homes that have, you know, large parking lots surrounding their their commuter rail stations, things like that. So, and it's a minimum. So some communities, um, if they want to be more progressive, if, if that's the right label, can um, can go even higher, um, and certainly I expect some to do that. But can we, can we, I heard that some are like suing the state because they don't want to do it. I, I don't think anyone's sued yet, but there are towns that have, in the comment period for the um, the state guidelines, the draft guidelines that were out governing that program, um, a few towns indicated that they plan not to comply with that law, which is unfortunate. And we're trying to think internally about opportunities to do more organizing in you know, some portion of those 175 impacted towns to make sure that supporters of density, supporters of you know, you know, more equitable, equitable distribution of homes and more housing choice you know, show up at their town meeting, planning board meetings, whatever, advocate for 
zoning that at least complies with this law, um, if not goes above and beyond this. We should publicly shame those towns. Oh, yeah. You know, it's incredible, the arrogance to stand up and say, this is a problem. Everybody needs to pitch in except for me and my neighbors in my town. It's just the low. And the problem is, is that they're lauded like heroes. We, we give these people who show up uh, year after year at community meetings to oppose every type of new housing. Merits signed by the mayor of the city for their commendable community work in protecting the neighborhood. It is such a narrative that's it's popular in the you know people's imagination, but it's so far from the truth. You're doing such an injustice to to your neighborhood. Oh, well, the reason for that is because it's their number one argument is you're taking away my parking. You're you're overcrowding the neighborhood. You're putting a strain we on can talk the about status that too. quo. Parking lots, you know. And and yeah, we can talk about that. I just wanted to bring up one question related to the, you know, this whole transit-oriented, what, what was it called again? I'm sorry. Uh, MBTA Communities Law, which okay. is not that descriptive. but and, and the idea is build densely around transit hubs. Right. And so my question is related to, we're talking about equitable and everybody's everybody should have equal access to use it. And, and that's just housing in general, not these particular areas. But is the intent that anybody who lives there will be working in and around another transit hub, i.e., let's say Boston or Worcester or any other major hub along the, the rail network, is the intent that they'll be there and it's easier for them to commute? Or is it just a reduced amount of parking because it'd be easier to kind of be part of the network? And let me start there with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, th I think the intention there is that it'll allow people to live in a, you know, a town like Weston or, or whatever, um, and then be able to commute into the city for, for jobs. This was, you know, certainly a, a law that was crafted prior to, to COVID. And, you know, certainly some commuting patterns have changed, but I, I still think it's, it's very valid to, to assume, you know, that will, will be the case. And, and in particular, these are, the law prohibits communities from placing any age restrictions, like for seniors on the new housing built in these districts. So increases the likelihood that it'll be, you know, working people, working families with with jobs they need to commute to and and continue. And it, and it allows their children to go Absolutely. to these school systems that otherwise may not have gotten the opportunity exactly. to go to. Exactly, exactly. Huh. And other amenities in these towns, whether it's you know open space or yeah. you know, things like that. So on the parking question, the law doesn't actually get into parking. It doesn't prohibit the communities from. Well, it doesn't explicitly prohibit the communities from placing parking minimums uh, in these zones. Uh, although DHCD, the Department of Housing and Community Development, which which governs the law, has said that they'll look at zoning restrictions that are placed in these districts to make sure they're not designed or at least have the impact of making it harder to build. Right? A community can say, "Sure, we'll we'll comply on paper, but we're going to have like." A two-to-one parking ratio, and you know you can't you can't right. build more than two stories, and right. they'll a, have other zoning restrictions. A Fifty percent inclusionary zoning requirement, things like that. Right? And the, the and city the, and has the, said no. Yeah, and the basis of my question is not to come across as anti one thing or the other. It's no. just more why around the MBTA stations because there's also two other arguments for abundant housing. Right? Is you sort of want to create these little mini villages, as we would say. So you don't have to be commuting. Yeah. You don't, I feel like there's a push to get back to that. And as well, you know, you could say around highway stops, you know, highway exits, you can build more densely too. But again, that comes back to instead of parking, just traffic in general, which is a nightmare. But so I think part of the, part of the idea must've been that you want to incentivize development near transit, right? You don't, you don't want to incentivize development near highways because look at our highways most of the day, right? Even during the peak of COVID, 
it's still gridlock traffic on 93 from yeah. three to seven every day. So I think if you want to talk about a sustainable future for this region, it's not building on that 128 mass bike interchange. It's yeah. building up transit stations. But to your other point, it's a good point is how are you incentivizing walkable neighborhoods? Because right. by incentivizing transit oriented development, you're not necessarily incentivizing walkable development, right? There, right. Well, like what's the, what's the makeup of that sort of of that potential development is it going to be a kind of village right and then maybe it encourages people to go from one village to the other sort of that mindset and obviously if we if this was passed tomorrow i mean what kind of dent would that put in the overall supply right so we need do we need more than just that like even if in the best case scenario where Bare, is that probably like, barely a dent right right like how bad is the problem really because we were we were saying before we started recording it's just a huge number of houses that need to be built and not enough land, not enough resources, not enough political will, whatever it is. So yeah. Well, well I was just say the, the estimates that DHCD was using recently were that we're currently behind the need of, we're at 200,000 units in Eastern Massachusetts. And I think, and Jesse, correct me if I'm wrong on this, MAPC has put out estimates in Eastern Mass that by 2040, we need 400,000 new units of housing. And we're nowhere near on pace to even come close to keeping up with that. That, that assumes current population growth estimates too. If, if that increases, if we keep building new labs and, and biotech industry in Boston just takes off a gangbusters like it is now, that gets even worse and that number is even higher. Yeah. I mean, that's, those numbers are right. And, you know, so I, I would assume it's somewhere between 200 and 400,000, but, you know, probably, probably even more to some degree. The law itself, the MBTA community's law itself, and actually the guidelines that DHCD wrote to implement the law sets a, a, a a threshold or a zoned capacity threshold that all 175 MBTA communities have to comply with. And it's basically taking a, a multiplier of your current um, housing stock. And that's the number of new units you have to zone for based on your transit service. So I think the largest number is Cambridge, which, and I don't remember the exact number, has to zone for the potential of 13,000 new units. The minimum is in some of these towns that are technically MBTA communities, but don't actually have an MBTA service and are just adjacent to another town that does. The minimum they have to build for, or not build for, but zone for is 750 units. Got it. So you can actually look at all 175 towns and I'm forgetting what the number is, but it's somewhere like, and I may be wrong, somewhere like 330. 300,000 new units across the region that these towns have to zone for. But that's okay. just zoning. And this Z zoning, but I mean that's definitely a bigger number than I had in my head, yeah. so that's great. But think I mean you you know how difficult it is to take yes. zoning and, and and make it real units and you know in a lot of these towns that are far flung, you know, MBTA adjacent where they have to zone for 750 like there's probably not a real market there. So, you know, we're probably not going to build 300,000 plus homes under this law, but you know, it's still probably the largest zoning reform that we've done in Massachusetts in a generation. And so, you know, we as Abundant Housing Massachusetts are going to continue to look real closely at it and, you know, make sure that as many towns as possible are complying with their requirement to implement the zoning. And then we'll see in the future what it takes to build under it. I wanted to add one thing that's relevant to this about this sort of question of walkable village centers or the 15 minute neighborhoods. You know, as I mentioned, about a hundred of those 175 communities are considered MBTA adjacent and don't actually have transit 
to build around transit oriented, you know, to build transit oriented development. So what the law says is that in those communities, they need to concentrate the development in the most sort of walkable village centers, right? Focus on creating more walkable, bikeable village centers. And this is something that shouldn't be that hard for people in Massachusetts to understand because even historically, you know, most of the, you know, historic towns throughout the region have a downtown area where there's at least a couple story buildings that are often mixed use. People love their village centers. And so to build more capacity in those centers, you know, more opportunity for for customers and their favorite local boutiques, even if they don't have transit services, should be a real win for those communities. To piggyback on that too, so the National Main Street Association, Main Street America, which is part of Saving Places, which is the National Historic Preservation, which is typically historic preservation and new housing development don't typically always go hand in hand. Mm. They put out a a pretty extensive housing report saying that 75% of their districts nationwide, their Main Street directors said that they wanted to see or that there was not enough housing in their district to support the demand for people who want to live in those main streets. And that sort of kind of jives with what you see across the country and across Massachusetts, where the demand for walkable housing is much higher than the actual supply. And those estimates are all over the place. But I think locally, you're seeing that as well, where the highest prices in in this region are are now sort of in those downtown neighborhoods or those communities that have downtowns and you can live sort of somewhat close to a walkable neighborhood. So it's an opportunity, I think, from this legislation for communities that don't today have a great walkable downtown to actually plan for and build, not just to meet these guidelines, but actually to meet sort of the demands of, of their future and a strong, sustainable future for their local economies and for the populations too. Take a quick break from our episode to recognize our sponsor, First Boston Capital Partners. Dave Grossman, who joined us on the pod recently as a principal there, leads a great team, very fast and flexible. If you need financing to build your building, uh, reach out. We'd love to give you an introduction. So the state supersede supersede local zoning ordinances, similar kind of like a 40B development. Someone, a developer can come in and propose a 40B development because it's state and it kind of overrides the local Mm -hmm. zoning ordinance. Is that a similar, how this? In in the case of this MBTA, MBTA communities law, the only consequence that's written into the law is uh, if, if you don't uh, you know adopt compliant zoning, is ineligibility for the MassWorks infrastructure grant program. And a few others. And a couple, couple other smaller grant programs. And that doesn't seem to be a strong enough consequence. The Boston Indicators Project of the Boston Foundation uh, did some analysis and saw that the vast majority of the 175 communities you know, haven't availed themselves of the MassWorks program. And some have said specifically, we have enough money that we can pay for our own infrastructure. We don't need a state grant to do it. So that may be a something that needs to be changed in this law moving forward. But there are other, even without legislative changes, there are other potential consequences for communities that don't comply. Looking like an asshole. Sorry. Looking like an asshole and, and, and you know, shaming, shaming is, is certainly one of them. They so don't care. That's what we're going to try to get our, our activists to do. Yeah. But from the legal perspective, this law, I'm, I'm, I'm not an attorney. I don't even play one on TV. But my understanding from those who know the law better than I do is the fact that the law says communities shall, shall adopt these zoning districts means that it's not a question. It's an actual zoning mandate and that uh, the attorney general could take legal action against towns that don't comply. In addition, 
There is an executive order, 215, that was implemented by Governor Ed King in 1982 that is still on the book, hasn't been rescinded by any subsequent governor, that essentially allows the administration to restrict all development-related grant funds to any community that does not do enough to keep up with, and you know, the, the, keep up with the demand for new homes in our region. That does not keep up with every single community. In basically, every single community. <laughs> and that's a far greater. We'll call it a carrot or a stick. I, I don't know. Which I forget if it's a carrot or a stick. stick. Yeah, that's probably the carrot. Stick. Yeah. It, and so it means that the next governor, um, you know, when guidelines that govern this law are, are, are in final form and, and communities have to act, the next government can go beyond just that MassWorks and a couple other smaller programs that are written into the law and say your general transportation funds you cannot get unless you comply with the MBTA community's law. So Executive Order 215 is a tool that, that the next governor will have. And I think that if we have either of the Democratic candidates for governor, they both seem to have indicated in from what I've read that that you know they would they seem to be willing to consider that. I don't think either have talked about that executive order in, in particular, but both of them have talked about the need uh, for all communities to build homes. So we, we talk we're talking a lot about the penalty, right? Carrot or stick method. And I think a lot of the conversation gets into that is is what do we do with these communities when they decide they're not going to comply. There's sort of that moral piece too. And I think the the more personal approach behind this is that look, I mean you have we're in the midst of a housing crisis. You're seeing people fleeing this region all the time for the last couple of years because they can't afford rents or they can't afford to see themselves actually buying homes in this region. That's the piece that I think if you actually sort of drill at home to a lot of communities, a lot of folks is the one that you would hope would be the reason for, for every single town and say, look, let's figure out a way to do this, right? Let's, let's not just say we're not going to stick our heads in the sand and say we're going to ignore the problem and ignore the crisis and let somebody else in 30 years actually solve it for us or actually sit here and plan for smart growth in our communities that will enable us to stay here as current homeowners, enable our kids and their generation to actually live close to family and close to parents, enable sort of a breakdown of this sort of racial divide that we have that's been essentially 80 years in the making by our, our exclusive exclusionary zoning policies of the past. Yeah, then there seems to be this sort of misconception among residents that when you're building you know, a new development in, in some suburban community. It's exclusively for the benefit of, of new people moving in who are often you know, wealthier than the residents who already live there. First of all, it's it's not the case that folks who are choosing to live in an apartment building in Newton or Wellesley uh, are necessarily wealthier than the folks who own a single family <laughs> home in those communities. But one of the ways to sort of turn it around and get people to think more critically is to ask about their own kids, right? Can your own kids maybe who grew up in a Newton or a Wellesley or a Weston or a Lincoln or a Concord, can they afford to move back to their town? Even though they may be a college graduate with a graduate degree, a professional job, can they actually afford to live here? And in many, many cases, obviously there's many exceptions, but in many cases, the reality is no. My child cannot afford to live in the community where they, where I raised them, where they went to school, where they may want to raise their own family if they had access to that, or to talk about availability of homes for, for seniors as they want to downsize but remain in their own community. You may want to live in an elevator building rather than you know a two-story single-family home where you have to walk up the stairs to your bedroom. So uh, trying to turn it around and make it not about opportunity for newcomers to live in your community, although that is part of it, but just giving access to your own family in your community 
is a way to really, really turn that narrative. I like and, that. Yeah, like that, that that's very good. Yeah. yeah. Mark and I were, were, we were talking yeah. about this yesterday a little bit too, but yeah. the, uh, the Vineyard Ferry had to cancel a couple of trips this weekend because of large part because they couldn't hire. And a lot of folks are saying because of the housing crisis and the housing shortage in the Cape, a lot of people are having a hard time hiring. Is that the piece? I think that could be it. Is, is no I one to serve you your caviar on I Saturday can, night. I can't get what to my you better approve home. these developments? I mean, the yeah. Provincetown superintendent of schools yeah. recently resigned her position. Yeah. Not a huge school district, obviously, you know, a small town, but resigned her position because she said she couldn't afford to live on the Cape. She couldn't find a year-round place that would allow her to live there that she could afford. And it's an, it's an acute problem on the island, and it's an acute problem on the Cape yeah. right now. But I think that's sort of a where we all might it's kind be. kind of a magnifying glass. It is. Exactly. I mean, yeah. okay, to be fair, oh. how much do you really want to develop a piece of land that could be totally impacted and wiped out from sea level change? So I think there's some of that. Look, I mean, I, I, I think it's yeah. more it's more an example of what could happen and, and really magnified case of not enough housing. And what are the ramifications of that? Clearly teachers, right. waiters, you know, so that's yeah, the reason why yeah. I brought it up. Just, just that one community. I was just like, let's no, let's put a little asterisk I, there. But I, name sure, any but, other but, name any other community, but, but, and the know, same thing could be happening. We in yeah, Greater right. Boston use the Cape as you know our vacation mm -hmm. you know resort, and you know there is a whole industry that needs to exist for us to be able to to go out to the Cape, and and people that need to be able to afford to live there. You know, we as tourists, or so to speak, you know, don't make the choice based on on sea level rise where we're going to travel. And so the, the demand remains. Yeah. Let's talk parking. <laughs> You've been taking my, so many notes, Mark. Favorites. I feel like we should start diving into those. So. Just like scribbling. Or doodles. Yeah. But nonetheless, we, we talk about vast parking lots. We talk about housing affordability and housing affordability and parking is inextricably tied. Jonathan, do you feel that that tie uh, should be loosened? Clarify that question. So I'm saying housing, uh, parking ratios really to new units and this, you know, that's what causes these expanses of blacktop and how that impacts uh, ability to provide supply of housing. I think particularly in Boston, we have this arbitrary idea of what needs to be built for parking that's based on a 1960s mentality of what driving in this region, how you get around this region looks like. So I think to talk about driving down the prices of building, which are now obviously, as you guys all know, getting higher and higher every single week, it seems like, what are some of the methods we can do to knock down the cost of building, but also allow for more units to be built in the same square footage? And getting rid of those parking minimums is one of the biggest things I think we can do in the city tomorrow to actually allow for more housing to be built. If you're forced to build a parking spot per unit, that's wasted space in that building. It might cut you down in terms of height limits, but it also is going to... It is the first, I call them pinch points, when we're looking uh, at planning a new site. How many parking spaces can I fit on the site? And then my architect and I will talk about how many units we can we can build. And it's the way the community interprets how much parking needs to be associated with a particular building is bizarre to me. They they basically think that for every bedroom yeah. there needs to be a, a parking spot. No so or two. So if you have a three bedroom unit, you have three you need three parking spots for that unit. Yeah. So it's it's like I, I don't understand how they get to that number or how they their thought process works but it's it's crazy to me there was and a great story from i, I want to say it was medford from medford city council hearing one of the city councilors who lived in a three-family home do you remember this story no where his neighbor had a single family home with a two-car garage they had five cars it was just two of them living in the house wow. there were eight people living in that three family there was i think two cars spread among all those families in there and and 
everyone thinks that you got the second you add density, it means you're adding a, a lot more parking. And I think it's it, the dynamics of, of families that live in smaller units in many cases means you're going to have less cars. I mean, if you have a single family home with a driveway, cram it with cars totally. and parking spots. Oh, yeah. A few years ago, the Metropolitan Area Planning Council did a study of parking and new developments around greater Boston. Perfect fit, I think, was the, the, what they called the study. And they found that I think 40% of parking built in new developments in the last 10 years or so uh, was vastly underutilized or empty. And, you know, they surveyed, they went to parking lots and new developments all around the region, looked at them in multiple times of day, you know, during business hours, after hours, et cetera. And their conclusion was a huge proportion of these spaces were, were underutilized um, and more so in, in the cities rather than some of the suburban ones, of course where transit access is better. We at Abundant Housing are very much pro-parking reform. I'm proud of work that we did last year in the city of Boston to eliminate all parking minimums for affordable housing in the city, right? So now if you're building a development that's at least 60% affordable for people below, I believe, 80% of area median income, you don't have any parking minimums that you need to build. You know, that was... The impetus for that was the lawsuit against the Jamaica Plain Neighborhood Development Corporation's development on Green and Washington Street in Jamaica Plain, where they're being sued by Turtle Swamp Brewing and their landlord based on a variance they received to do zero parking for a 39-unit senior building two blocks from uh, Green Street Station on the Orange Line. And so, again, the impetus was to remove the sort of right of butters to sue against, uh, you know, no lower, no parking variances, but it also has great impacts in terms of affordability. Developers now can save the money, affordable housing developers at least, that they would use to build parking structures or parking lots and put that back into building more units or using the space, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, to build some some more units. It's a, a strategy to increase affordable housing. So that was something that we advocated for last year, worked with Councillor Kenzie Bach, as well as former counselor Matt O'Malley, and ultimately Mayor Wu signed that into law right before Christmas last year. I will say that Mayor Wu has also stated publicly her support for eliminating parking minimums citywide for all development, not just affordable housing. The political conversation around that is a little bit more difficult than it was for affordable housing for a variety of reasons, but it is something that we uh, at Abundant Housing support and would love to work with the mayor and other advocates uh, to make that happen, right? I don't need to to you know lecture any, any of you in this room or or really your your listeners about the incredibly high cost for projects of building structured parking in the city of Boston, which then becomes one of the high costs that's passed on to the end user in terms of you know high rent or sales prices. So, in addition to things like more buy right housing development, uh, limiting parking minimums is one of the zoning reforms we would like to see. The city of Boston and other cities in our regions adopt. Cambridge right now is on the precipice of eliminating parking minimums for all new development, not just residential development, but new commercial development as well, as well across the entire city. It's a, a proposed ordinance that's sponsored by Burhan Azim, who's a city councilor there, and is also a board member of Abundant Housing Mass. In fact, he's our board treasurer and one of the founders of our organization. It seems like they're going to have the votes to eliminate all parking minimums 
in Cambridge. And hopefully that becomes an example that Boston and other communities in the region can follow. There's precedent for this too. Not, I mean, there's cities like Buffalo, Minneapolis that have eliminated parking minimums over the past few years. More recently, large cities in Canada, Toronto, Edmonton have completely eliminated parking minimums and said, you know what, this doesn't make sense for the, this type of city we want to be. The, a greener city, a more walkable, transit-oriented city that puts housing above cars and, and parking. And I think for a city like Boston to not even have a serious conversation about, do we really need to stick to the, the parameters of 1960s Boston, or can we kind of get with the program of this Green New Deal, which the mayor is pursuing as well, and actually back it up with some zoning changes to meet that too? Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I mean, I'm, I agree with the, the parking reform. On the flip side, I'll just say, I think just overall zoning reform is just as important because while while you eliminate the the zoning requirement for parking like for that instance for that JP development neighbor can sue you for on the yeah. 17 other variances Absolutely. that you have to get for that project anyway so it's a great step in the right direction but I think obviously there's just a lot more oh, overall zoning work that needs to be done. Citywide zoning reform is something we've been kicking the can down the road on. It's, absolutely. Yeah. 20 absolutely. plus years in yeah. Boston, I think. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, you know, like, and I think yeah. it's not even just Boston, like Somerville. It's, I think they yeah. did a study and they said, what, 5% of the existing housing stock would be considered, you know, if everything that was there burned down now, what would actually be able to be built by right? It was like 5%. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Well, and look beyond Boston too. My parents, I was born and raised in Swampscott. My parents still live there. They live in the same house that I grew up in. Every house on that street buys current zoning, and a lot of suburban communities around Greater Boston are like this because they want to be able to control what was built in their neighborhoods. Every single house on that street requires 20,000 square foot lots to build. There's not a single home on that street that has more than nine to 10,000 square foot lots. The entire district could not be built today. You could build half as many homes in that district today. Yeah. I think the biggest challenge, the biggest hurdle to get through, and I don't know how we solve it or if we wait until autonomous vehicles, but it's transportation, right? So. You know, Jesse, you mentioned you took the train and then the bus to get here. I don't know how long it took you, but I'm sure it was a, a little bit. I think if we get to a point where autonomous vehicles are adopted and more, I don't want to argue about the safety of them because I think they're safer, but if they are more widely adopted and then municipalities say, or the MBTA will say, hey, we're going to add some to our to our thing and, and sort of make it like an on-demand Uber thing, but it's not subsidized, but it's more affordable than an actual Uber because you're just paying for that machine and the maintenance of it rather than a driver. That could help in terms of kind of bridging some of the gaps between why one neighborhood is more accessible than another. And to make something truly accessible, I don't think there should be this rigid infrastructure that we have to constantly maintain and, and bit, frankly, bitch about all the time, about it not working half the time. There's got to be a better way. What are your thoughts? This is probably a conversation for a different podcast, yeah. autonomous vehicles. I don't think I'm as high and a lot of folks I think are, are not as high on autonomous vehicles and the promise of them. It doesn't necessarily eliminate our traffic issues, and, and it may even make them worse. If you have a family of four that owns one autonomous vehicle, the idea potentially is that the husband gets dropped off at work, the wife gets dropped off at work, the car is going back and forth to make all these different trips at different times in the morning and then doing the same thing in the afternoon. So you're potentially adding more trips, more traffic, more congestion. I mean, like anything, it depends on how it's rolled out. I also think this is, we're years away from that being oh, yeah, reality yeah. in this region. I'm just trying to think like how... How is it that, do we add more buses? Do we add more well, this? Do we add more that? Like, how do you make it faster? What, was Ed, what did Ed Glazier say to us about the- 30 the, years of Harvard transportation study concludes one thing, bus is good, train's bad. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's it's a lot flexible, of, it's, there's a lot behind that, right? I mean, yeah. you can, you can you look at the MBTA and they just announced their new bus routes recently and their plans for new bus routes. 
you can test them out, right? Do they work for people on that route? And if not, you can move it. So there is a lot behind that. Mm. I think the other piece of the conversation is how do we focus less on having to move people so much? How do we provide, like we were talking about before, Ray, how do we provide opportunities for people to do more near where they live, where they don't have to drive 20, 30 minutes to get a gallon of milk and drive back to their house, right? right? How can they do more of those things in their daily life? Maybe a couple of things require longer trips, but more of those day-to-day errands, those day-to-day social needs are within walks, bikes, or short trips from their homes. I'd like to see also more focus on the, um, that, that question of the final mile in, 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 in commutes and what is serving when you get off the train and you still got to walk a mile to get home that disincentivizes you from using the train. What we don't have in Boston is great infrastructure around that. I was just in Portland, Oregon in April for a conference. They have these scooters everywhere, yeah. you know, the, the, the Lime or, you know, mm-hmm. Bird scooters, which, you know, Brookline tested for about three or four months a couple of years ago and then quickly abandoned. And, and um, we've never had them uh, throughout greater Boston or the fact that a lot of bike share networks around the country have e-bikes mm. uh, in their network. We don't have any e-bikes in the blue bike network, mm. um, which would make it a little bit more efficient for people Contact to move that legislature to get that. Yeah. You know, legislator to get that changed. <laughs> so just, you know, creating the infrastructure for alternative modes between that, you know, in that final mile between that train station and your home, I think will make it, it doesn't, Solve everyone. Not everyone's going to feel safe on an electric scooter. Of course. Um, what about a one-wheel skateboard? I was just going to say, Mark, you <laughs> can do that. Those electric Down Morrissey yeah. Boulevard. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> I, I just think, you know, the reason I bring the whole thing up is because I think, obviously, that is the biggest thing that you hear about. One of the biggest things you hear about pushback in terms of more density. Well, now you're you're adding this and you're adding that. And so how do we solve for those problems rather than just saying, no, we're just going to say no, no more of this restriction. One thing I would add just on the, the parking piece. And again, you, you know, I know you'll all understand this and, and your audience will too, but you know, eliminating parking minimums doesn't mean no parking will get built. It just allows the developers to build parking the mar- that's going to serve the market. The market you know? will determine it. And that's the best force. You're not going to build zero parking yeah. if it won't attract um, if you a know, parking renters spot costs me 40 grand to build and I think I'll get that return, then terrific. Right. Um, yeah. Will you yeah. tell me, will financial institutions finance a project in Boston right now without any parking? Yes. Okay. 100%. Great. So it's just the parking minimums. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, it's been super fun. I think uh, it's been a good conversation. If folks want to get involved in abundant housing or follow your work on Twitter or otherwise, how can they do that? So we have a website. We encourage folks. We're a membership organization. Encourage folks to join as members. AbundantHousingMA.org is our website. You can find us on Twitter at Abundant Homes MA. And we're also on on Facebook and LinkedIn at Abundant Housing Massachusetts. John, Jesse, thank you guys. Yeah, thank thank you you so much. Great Great conversation. Thanks everyone for listening, rating, reviewing, subscribing, and I will catch you on the next one. Later. Cheers.